Hi, my name is Kathy Collins, and I'll be co-hosting Airing Addiction with Lisa Blanchard. No one story is is the same as someone else's, but each journey is different. thing on the table. Having run substance use treatment programs for over 20 years, trying to make sure that we are welcoming to I love the idea that kind of having that exposure and that affirming place, even for one person, impacts that milieu, which then can impact maybe the broader recovery community, the community at large. I mean, I really love that. Um, Morning, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our Airing Addiction podcast. We have a really special show coming up. I hope you stick around. My name is Kathy Collins, and I'm introducing my co-host, Lisa Blanchard. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining. I'm Lisa Blanchard, and I'm really, really happy to introduce our guest today. Um, I've been impressed with her work for many, many years now. We were just talking uh, before we started about how many years that is, has been. Um, but we're here today with Joanne Peterson, who's the founder and executive director of um, the Family and Peer Support Network, Learn to Cope. And so welcome, Joanne. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lisa and Kathy. Um, it's really good to be here. I'm happy to do so. It's good to see people. It's good to see people. At least we can see you, and even though we can't be in the same room together. Yes, see each other in any way that we can. Um, so as we get started today, Joanne, you know, can you can you start us off with telling us a little bit about your story and your family story that kind of has led to Learn to Cope, which we'll get into a lot of detail about today? Sure. So um, I started Learn to Cope back in 2004, um, almost 17 years ago, really. But um, by accident, I didn't know I was starting anything, never wanted to start anything, um, and never really truly wanted to be on the road <laughs> that I went. But um, it was back in the early 2000s with the whole Oxycontin, you know, it just got out there. It, it, no one knew what it was back then. I had never heard of it. Um, and my son had just graduated high school and experimented with it with some other kids, and it changed, you know. As we know today, you know, the next day he was not okay. He needed that again and again. And you all know that story and what it led to, you know, it led to, um, you know, heroin because it was cheaper, it could be snorted. Anyway, back in those days, there was no cell phones really, there was no Facebook, there was nothing really. And we didn't even know what was wrong with him, what had happened to him. Um, you know, I, I thought it was mental health. I thought it, it might be, you know, Back in the early days when I was a child, you know, I was not new to addiction. I lost a brother um, in 2011, but when I was a, a kid, he always battled with alcohol and cocaine. And then my sister, my older sister battled with alcohol, but she also had schizophrenia, which we did not realize until she was in her twenties. So a lot of the symptoms that I used to see in her when I was a little girl, um, and I'd watch my mother try to help them both without any help back in the 70s. Nobody spoke about addiction. They didn't even use that word, really. Or mental health. Or mental health. No. It, was, it was more, your sister's crazy and your brother's a drunk. And But then there was no, can I help you? Or, you know, there's this treatment or that. There was nothing like that. It was more like my poor mother would just have to just be told to, from people, there's nothing you can do, just kick them out. There's not a thing you can do. And so my mother, you know, I... I who was the best mother in the world. She tried everything she could without much support. So here we are years later, the torch pretty much was passed on to me. So I am a 
firm believer in, in my own case, I'm speaking for myself, that it's in my genetics. I believe in that science. Um, so anyway, back in those days, not thinking, wow, this could be addiction. Um, it was more, you know, I was bringing him to a crisis center because he wasn't sleeping anymore. He was losing weight. He seemed depressed. He seemed down. He didn't have, I wasn't smelling anything, you know, alcohol. So it, it had never, ever, ever occurred to me that there was this pill out there that I had never heard of. And especially how never would have ever guessed that. So my husband and I really had to figure a lot of things out for ourselves. <clears throat> and then when we finally did, we also had to figure out um, treatment. And back then, people still, even treatment centers weren't prepared. Schools weren't prepared. Law enforcement wasn't prepared. All these pharmacies were being broken into. And like I said, there was no Facebook groups. There was nothing for us to really turn to. So, you know, back then there was no health insurance after you're 18. You didn't have Obamacare. So it was like, we relied a lot on, you know, it, three-day detoxes and having to learn the hard way that that was not the first one and that coming home after detox that was not treatment he needed treatment after detox we didn't know about step counts and CSS and PSS and all this stuff it was we were on our own and if you didn't have any money you hit brick walls um as far as insurance like I would go back to a place and he was still a kid he was 19 and it was, nope, he was already here. He can't come back. Or I would say, so what do I do now? Oh, we can't talk to you. There's HIPAA laws. And, you know, so I, we were going insane. Um, and that started from 2001 till 2004. We struggled our, alone trying to deal with this. Not even realizing the danger of overdose. Not knowing the signs and symptoms that after I finally learned on my own, was like, wow, we are so lucky he's alive. Um, you know, he went through different types of treatment. Um, this was even before buprenorphine was even out on the market. I, I mean, it was, there was, we didn't know about Narcan, none of that. So by 2004, he, you know, I was kind of forced out there um, because he got into some trouble and it got into the newspapers. And um, so I live in one of those little towns where nothing happens. <laughs> And then it was the judgment and the stigma began. And that pretty much brought me right back to when I was a kid with my brother and sister. And I was like, you know what? I'm not standing for this. They can write about it in the papers all they want. I'm gonna tell the other side. And by then he was, you know, um, paying some consequences for things, which, you know, for him actually turned out to be a good thing. Um, he's in long, long-term recovery. He's gone way on with his life. Mm. married kids home all of that but um back then I asked him I said do you want to be known for the rest of your life for the for this um it's in the newspapers or do you want to talk about what happened to you because it was actually an adult in town that was providing the kids with the opiates and I didn't find that out until much later um but you know he had prescriptions that he was sharing with his own son mm. and other kids in town so um, that's why I warn people today about sleepovers and make sure you really know who, who even though after they're 18, that's hard to do, um, especially when they have a car and a little bit of freedom. But, um, you know, it was one of those sleepovers that that father, you know, 
which I, I even understand him now because now I know what addiction does to a person's psyche and that, you know, he might've been a good father and husband one day and there was probably a reason that there was a divorce and he lived alone. Um, he himself became addicted to those pills and then started doing things, sharing it with his own son, something he probably never would have imagined he would do. So I understand that now, but anyway, by 2004, once we did that, to make a very long story short, I heard from people from all over the place. It, it, I, um, the Norfolk County DA, who is now Congressman Keating, um, I worked for NFPA, which is National Fire Protection Association, and my boss um, told me about this forum that was happening to warn the public about this new drug, OxyContin, because the DA's office was starting to find people deceased with the pills. And um, that was the first time I had heard anyone else talking publicly about this. So I contacted them and I ended up speaking in front of like 200 people that night. I just stood there and cried on the stage because my son was incarcerated at the time. And um, after that, another story was written about what I talked about. And I gave them my email address, the reporter. And the funny thing about it is my email address was learn to cope 2001 and it was a Yahoo address. And the only reason it was called that is because I would join things and try to find information and I never wanted my name. I never wanted anyone to know who I was trying to learn about heroin and pills. And I was learning the cope and it was the year 2001. So I kind of created that email address as like an alias. And that ended up in the newspaper. So all these people were emailing me at that address. And then I became like this Dear Abby. And <laughs> it was getting shared all over and all of these people were contacting help and I'm like look I'm just like you I'm just trying to help my family and you know I started saying let's just start meeting and today you know there's thousands and thousands of people on our website and we have meetings all over the state and out of state um today we're a pilot for nasal naloxone so we train and give out Narcan to families um there's um 14 staff members for Learn to Cope that handle all of our different chapters and we do trainings, we do webinars, um, we do CIT training, some of our staff with law enforcement. Um, we speak all over the place when we're asked like we're doing today and um, you know Facebook, since Facebook started there's so much more out there which is great um, but it also you know with COVID um, all of our meetings are now virtual, but they're very, very good. Um, it's almost scary because there's so many people accessing them now, even from other states. Um, but we, we're a very, um, our meetings are run very well. We have a lot of training behind that. And, you know, the facilitators that we have are very good. And we make sure we provide, we're providing a service, not just a meeting that anyone can just blurt things out we're very you know it's run very well you can have 60 people on a call or 50 people in an hour and a half and it's still run very well but it is it's getting pretty getting pretty big yeah um, to the question um 
if someone is trying to find a meeting, because I know, I mean, I have been to a live Learn to Cope meeting and it was so helpful for me because of the structure of it and the safety. When I went, I was just going to merely see what this is because I want to refer people to go there because I, I've heard so much about it. And um, the safety of it, where it feels like you go there and someone greets you and you're protected, it, it felt very, very safe to mm -hmm. be vulnerable. And, um, and I've often still refer people to it. And I'm wondering, now that it's all Zoom, how can someone, because now it's an open forum, pretty much mm -hmm. anyone can join and get the help they need. So how would someone in um, another state who's not familiar with this look it up and get connected to you? So all they have to do is go to our website, which is www.learn with the numeral two cope.org. And on the home page, if they scroll down, it's, it's called the Stay Connected form. Mm -hmm. And all they have to do, and everything's confidential, all they have to do is give us their name and their email. That does not get shared with anyone. But then we connect them with the Zoom meeting that they would fit. So say, say they were from um, Shrewsbury, we would connect them with the Worcester or Hudson meetings. If they were from mm -hmm. um, Somerville, we'd connect them to the Cambridge Franklin. Mm -hmm. So we try to do that so that when we do go back in person, they'll have, they'll already be at that meeting. Mm -hmm. So once they fill out that form, you know, we might ask a few questions because we do really care about confidentiality. That's one of the most, that's probably the most important thing, that and safety. Um, we make sure they're a family member. And then once we know, we send them the link. Um, and then they go, they go every week if they want, or they can visit other meetings. Yeah, and if someone is out of state, like Ohio, and they don't have, you know, they don't have this, where might, they, same thing, you would direct them to a meeting that would, and someone might reach out to them and chat with them just to help them in the meantime to sort of get connected, is that right? Yes, and um, we have people from other states on a lot of our meetings. We have Vermont, we have Florida, we have a large amount of people from Florida. We have California. Um, so the good news about this is even once we can go back in person, we will keep this available for our out-of-state people yeah. because it's really, they need it. Um, so that's one of the blessings with COVID is, you know, more people are getting connected to support. So a couple of things strike me about your story, um, you know, which I've heard before, but every time you you, you share it, you know, I, I I gain something more. And so, um, you know, something about like that, that the domino effect of kind of just starting to research and starting to set up the email, and you know how that just kind of has evolved and turned into such a wide support network is really quite amazing. You know, there were probably multiple points where you could have kind of stopped trying to be helpful and you really just kept being more and more helpful and your lived experience has really informed how learn to cope has evolved right so when i when i hear you talk about that confidentiality and that safety in being so important it's because you know that's important that's exactly why you set up that email in the first place right that was anonymous and so you know, and, and that really carrying that forward, no matter how big you've gotten right now available to, you know, other states and still having this kind of a bit of a vetting process first so that there is that safety and security. I mean, that's just, um, you know, really um, unbelievable um, and, and really commendable. Um, Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and that, you know, stigma really hurts. 
and it prevents people from asking for help. So, as you said, Lisa, I was asking for help anonymously because I didn't want to be stigmatized. So mm -hmm. there you go. Yeah. And imagine how the person with the addiction uh, who is feeling. I mean, right. we're, we're just relatives or that. And imagine the person living with it. But it, it um, triggered a question in my head about that in the sense that um, obviously nobody has all the answers or we would cure this and it would not be an issue. But I, I think learn to cope. What I felt from the meetings, what I feel from you uh, is that there's some sort of sense of hope you get from the camaraderie of like, this is terrible. And not everybody's son has a happy ending, as you know. Um, and I just, I feel like being able to just be compassionate and hear someone else's pain, they no longer feel alone with it. Right, that's right. And, you know, I should mention, we do have a lot, we try to have guest speakers at least once, sometimes twice a month. And people in recovery are our favorite. Um, because hope is a very, you know, in our mission, we say we provide support, education, resources, and hope. Because if you can provide all four of those things in one meeting, then you're doing, someone's going to feel better when they leave than they did when they came in, no matter what they're going through. That hope is something you really hold on to. I held on to it all my life for many reasons. Um, but also, and this is kind of a hard thing to talk about, but it, it is what it is, is, and you mentioned, there's not always a happy ending. We lose a lot. We're still, even last week, we're getting emails that someone passed. passed and COVID has made it even harder because people can't have that. It's gotten a little better, but that ritual of, you know, that having a funeral and all your friends, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just been so hard. But I've heard people say, even after they've lost their kids and they've been a member of Learn to Cope for a long time, that they feel like at least they had, they were some, you're never prepared, but they felt like they were somewhat prepared. And then they'll go to a, a grief group and meet people that had no education on addiction and it was just a sudden loss. That, mm. You know, it's almost like, like I said, you can't ever be prepared. But having that education stops people from having as much guilt because sometimes people blame themselves, even though they, they should not blame themselves. It's not anything anyone can control, but you know, being a part of any group that has the education on the disease of addiction will know deep down in their hearts that they tried everything and that they, they learned about it. Mm -hmm. and like trying to control someone with diabetes that's eating chocolate chip cookies and drinking soda i mean you just can't you can't control everything yeah. so um we do have um we do give out a lot a lot of our members that lose their kids have started their own like, leaf circles and we um we actually um found this his name is franklin cook he's been amazing um and he He's from Unified Solutions. He's a grief peer worker. Um, and it's also, there's a website, it's called sadod.org, which is substance um, after overdose passing. Mm -hmm. um, 
So he lists all the different grief groups that are out there for people. So if you do have someone that's lost someone, you have somewhere to refer them to. Um, and he's very good. He helps frontline workers. He helps our facilitators. He helps us because, you know, we deal with a lot of grief and trauma like you do as well. Um, like when I lost my niece, I was a mess for, I'm, you know, it's been two years now and I'm finally getting kind of back on track, but I didn't expect that, you know. Right. I mean, I should have because as prepared as you are. You still yeah, exactly. Like I say, I mean, you can be, you can have all the education in the, in the world. And when I had started this, I thought it was my son that I was losing. And then years later, it's someone else that I really loved. But um, I know I couldn't control that. But I, I had to step back and just get the help I needed. And Franklin was a huge part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the um, community, that's when you need that community the most, right? Is that, that re reminder, that support, that lack, that not the isolation that can, can come from that is, um, you know, understanding and having the education before is really helpful. But when you're in your hardest moment, your hardest season in your life, how how do you kind of have that reminder from a supportive community that, yeah. you know, it isn't your fault and um, in that, you know, you, you can get, get through this. Yeah. And, you know, like, like anyone else that loves someone with an addiction, you have those human feelings when they're going, when they're in the throes, um, you get angry, mm -hmm. you know, you can have all the education in the world and there's a relapse and you feel anger. Like, Oh my God. Like, but yeah, it's you have to remind yourself that this is they can't help it sometimes sometimes this is the best they can do for that day um so you know i had my own guilt when she passed away because i did get angry at her because she had a child and i was like you know what when you're ready next time call me again because i used to put her in detox and help her out all the time and then she died mm -hmm. like, oh my god like you know so you know, I just, I still struggle with that as a human being, as a person that really, really loved her. But no matter what I did, I couldn't help. I couldn't help her. So that's that part is, you know, we, we can do everything we can, but at least I know I tried and I did try. So that's what you, that's what people go through and that's why they need support. Yeah. And that's part of grief, right? Even when someone, you can still be angry. Yeah. It's not me. Can you hear me still? Yeah, I can. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I don't have any noise here, so I don't know what that that noise is. But um, so you know, the, the grief, anger is part of grief, right? And yeah. so even when somebody's alive, but they're you know they're they're battling um, you know their their addiction, their substance use, you know those around them can get angry because you're grieving the person that you that you thought you had. You're grieving kind of the relationship you thought you'd have in this moment you know and um and that's really challenging yeah they call that um ambiguous grief and there's mm -hmm. complicated grief um you know franklin really explains it best so um i should put you in touch with him he's very very good with helping people with that yeah yeah absolutely because i also you know i've heard some great um you know podcasts that have talked about the fact that given this pandemic we're kind of all going through some ambiguous grief kind of collectively, right? Because we're grieving kind of what we thought would be happening um, in general in life, right? And then you add in addiction to that, or it can it can lead to, you know, accelerated substance use because we're all just kind of grieving what we thought 
everything would look like, what we thought family gatherings would look like, you know, even things that are, you know, sound frivolous. Um, you know, I, I don't know, you know, how, how you, how you manage that, but that, you know, that support for grief is really helpful. Um, and I was just going to say for anyone who's listening to this or watching this on um, the live stream, uh, we will list all the links that you're talking about so people can have references. Um, and I would imagine they're all also available on Learn to Cope website. Yeah, they are. That's a great resource as well. Um, and then I was just wondering how, um, as we a follow up to that, how you're feeling about hearing, like how it triggers people. A, the, you know, obviously COVID, I think it's been a real uptick because of the fact that the extra funds have been available to people that might not have had funds. And yes. I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. We hear that all the time. Um, you know, the stimulus money, which, you know, was a great thing for people that lost their jobs, but it wasn't great for everybody that was in very early recovery and still struggling because as, as you know, it can be a trigger to suddenly have all this money again. And we, we do hear that a lot that all, oh, they got the stimulus and they were off and running. And so yeah, it's been a trigger um, for people. Um, and a lot of times, you know, I can think of one in particular, every time he got the money, he took off and, you know, luckily he's okay right now, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a trigger. It's almost like somebody you know, someone that's with any addiction, you know, that's trying to quit smoking and then there's a pack of cigarettes open on the table in front of them. It's like they're going to grab that pack of cigarettes, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, so tempting, yeah. And then the other thing I was wondering, um, just um, in light of Oxycontin being sort of a triggering starting drug, like, and now it's making the news again. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I just wondered, like, that has to just set people... So that whole deal, I was on the phone like all day yesterday. Um, mm -hmm. I'm on the advisory, family advisory council for the attorney general's office. So we had a, a, a meeting with Maura Healy yesterday and, you know, I'm involved in that whole, um, the bankruptcy as part of the family council. And then also a national, I was one of the testifiers in 2007 at their first sentencing in Abingdon, Virginia, along with 18 other parents. Um, most of them had lost their kids. So I've been involved in that fight for a long time. Um, yesterday was a hard day um, because it, you know, what you're seeing on the news, it sounds like, oh, this is great. You know, there's three criminal felonies and $10 billion. Right. What people don't understand. Um, and I did just post something big on the Learn to Cope Facebook to explain it more if people want to read it. But um, what the Department of Justice is offering is their proposal to Judge Drain is that Purdue Pharma be turned into a public trust that the government would own, which is a very scary thing because if that happens, then the future sales of OxyContin will go into a public trust that the government will own, which if in a normal bankruptcy case is it would go out to bid for private entities to buy it. Mm -hmm. And then those private entities would have to follow the law. And, you know, all of this happening in, again would be much harder, but if it goes into a public trust, there'll be no following the law. So it'll be just 
the same thing that happened in 07. It'll just continue. And that money, that profit from the sales of OxyContin will go into a government trust. So that money will be spent on trying to help people that get addicted to it. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like- It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. yeah, I mean, why not like have, have it like any other bankruptcy case, let another pharmaceutical company buy Purdue Pharma, rename it, but also follow the laws to keep the public safe. That's what we would like. Mm -hmm. But this way is great for Purdue Pharma. And then the Sacklers who own Purdue Pharma who are worth $14 billion, there's no accountability at all for them and they get to keep all their money and live in their lavish mansions. And so yeah. I'll end there because otherwise you'll never shut me up. <laughs> yeah, I totally get it. I totally get it. So to switch gears then, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask, because I know this is so inherent in what Learn to Cope does, and especially right now, um, you know, that, that you do a lot of education on signs to look for, for your loved one, you know, had what, what paraphernalia, what, um, you know, behavior, you know, all of the things that can help, you know, families and support and loved ones kind of recognize when somebody might be using or be in trouble. And um, has that been really important right now, given kind of the quarantine time, like, you know, isolation, you know, you know, you all might be home together, people might be kind of shutting themselves off, um, you know, in isolation, which can be really high risk for overdose. So can you tell me a little bit about what you're hearing in the in the meetings now? So yeah, on the prevention end, we haven't had a lot of prevention, a lot of ways to reach people who it hasn't happened to their kids yet to offer them those signs and symptoms and things. So yes, that's changed. Um, where there's not really as many public events where we would share that information. Um, so what we're really only hearing from are people that are already in the throes with their loved ones. So um, that definitely is an issue you know there should be more prevention um shows out there or um so that people can learn before this happens um what are the signs and symptoms you know some of the, them are, are very easily like well when I explained that I thought my son was maybe going to be like my sister and have schizophrenia because a lot of those symptoms were the same he was all of a sudden up all night and sleeping all day he no longer wanted to go to school. He looked different. He seemed depressed. So I was thinking he's in crisis. I'm going to take him to a crisis unit for mental health when what it was, it was the symptoms of the drug use that really mirrored that. So, you know, it's pretty complicated. So, you know, I, I would, I would like to see more prevention stuff out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more media, right? Like have that be kind of present in the news in things that people who don't even know they need it can hear. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely taken a backseat to COVID. Um, and this is raging on still. If not, you know, the pain from it will, and the pain and the trauma from this coupled with COVID will go on for years. Um, especially those that weren't able to properly say goodbye to their loved ones. They couldn't even have a funeral. Um, we have a dad that lost his son um, two weeks after he lost his father to COVID. Couldn't have a funeral for either one of them. I mean, imagine that, I, you know, um, 
it, it's pretty traumatic stuff. So we really need to have a lot of resources available for people for all sorts, for COVID, losing people to COVID, losing people um, to addiction. And a lot of people relapsing that had years and years in recovery and the isolation, like you mentioned, Kathy and Lisa, that you know, you're isolated in your home, you're not able to see your friends or go to your AA or NA or smart recovery meetings. And suddenly, you know, that bottle of wine sounds pretty good. And believe it or not, I've heard of it multiple times of people with long-term recovery. You know, it is the isolation, the isolation, the extra cash. Now, you know, who's going to know? Yeah. always go back and you know you, you know I, I heard recently of someone who you know I, it's so sad I can't even talk yeah. about it yeah. <laughs> it's just it's such a devastating illness and the, the truth is like you said people aren't picking it it's not as if you're saying okay when I grow up I'm going to be uh, diabetic and I'm going to you know it's not a choice it's something that happens and it's a disease that hits so I totally uh, you know my heart is breaks for the people who, like you say, the COVID, they can't, you know, you can't say goodbye to your parents, but here you can't have a proper funeral for your child. And yeah, it's really a devastating time. And um, I agree about the prevention training. There's so much. And um, I know typically um, Learn to Cope does Narcan training as well. And I'm a big proponent that you don't, you don't even know who you're going to run into that might need this. You know, I have a nephew who was stopped at a traffic light, looked over at a car that was stopped next to him. Someone was overdosing and he got out. He had Narcan because he carries it, ran around and saved the guy's life. And to me, yeah. that is the value. Everybody should carry it. It should just yeah. be in your purse, you know? Yeah. We had to get creative with that because obviously we were giving out Narcan in person so what we do now, if someone needs it, we always remind people that we can still get it to them. Is we do the training online with them one-on-one -on -one after the meeting, obviously. We do the paperwork with them online, which is always confidential. And then we'll either mail it to them or deliver it to their mailbox. So we're still able to get it to them. And people can still get it at pharmacies too, most pharmacies. And that's a good, great resource to put out there, right? Because of the, all we've been talking about, that isolation, even for folks who have had long periods of time without use, have been in long-term recovery, you know, and, and and even as well as you try to protect your recovery, nobody picked this pandemic, right? So nobody right. kind of planned, you know, th this kind of isolation. Nobody chose to be isolated in the way that we all are now. We all were kind of taken by surprise. And even in the beginning, thinking it would be short-term, and now it's gone on longer and longer and longer. And the longer it goes on, the more of an impact I think it's going to have. And so, you know, everybody kind of having access to Narcan, I think it's wonderful that you've navigated a way to, to still provide that um, and still, you know, help people access it um, because it is, it's even more important now. Yeah, we're pretty lucky here in Massachusetts to have that option. There's some states that don't. So, you know, we, we're lucky that we have that. You know, we have an administration in Massachusetts that and that works really well with DPH, and you know, we're pretty lucky here. To be honest. Yeah, we are. Um, I, I was thinking of one other thing when you were telling your story early on, how you mentioned, you know, your kids going to a sleepover, and you didn't mention this, but I have a feeling this is a pretty highly likely scenario. You know, in that particular case, the the dad was actually freely giving meds, but you actually, as a parent, 
I'm not a parent, but you actually have the, you have to think about the fact that what's in someone's medicine cabinet? Are people consciously, when, if they, they didn't use up their 10 pills, are they disposing of them properly? Or are they, you know, where are those pills? And kids are sneaky. I'm, I'm a sneaky kid. And, you know, you're, you know, what, who's, has access to these meds. I think that's another huge prevention thing that, you know, it gets talked about occasionally and there are drop boxes at regional police stations and that sort of thing, but it's always a good reminder to people to yeah. drop your meds. And I believe this weekend is the National Drug Take Back Day. So if you have leftover stuff, you can bring it to, you know, you can probably check your town's website or mass.gov probably has it listed. Um, in, I think it's national, so I think any state has it. Um, you know, so if you have leftover pills, my dog just had surgery a couple of weeks ago, and they gave him gabapentin. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now I have, I, I, yeah, I have to get rid of this because I have a huge bottle full of it. He only needed it for like two or three days, you know, for his pain. And now I have, I think they gave me like it's like full bottle of gabapentin which is a highly it can be abused mm -hmm. so um i think i'll be bringing that by this weekend <laughs> or you so, can yeah. you know if you take wet coffee grounds you can put the pills crushed up in the wet coffee grounds and then put them back in the coffee container and get rid of it that way in the trash yeah. So one of the questions I have um, whenever I talk to you know, folks who have access to families or our families is as a treatment provider, what are the things that we can do to really include and support families in the care process? Um, I think one of the biggest things um, that comes up a lot that we, we try to explain too is HIPAA that, um, you know, everyone has a right to privacy with HIPAA. And especially if it's someone that's very new to this, they don't always understand that because they're, it's so urgent. They're, they're in such crisis, they're scared to death. Um, and I always think about like when my husband, my husband's diabetic, he, he tells people that all the time. You know, the education a family gets when someone, a, a member of the family has a diabetic in the home is, you know, the diet that they should have and what to do if they have hypo or hyperglycemia, whether you call 911 or you give them orange juice or candy. So I think probably one of the most meaningful things that I would have loved and that many other people would love is, um, I know you guys practice kindness, but sometimes people can get really short with people and say, I can't talk to you because they have a Rather than that, it could be, you know, something I really, you know, I, I know you don't understand this, but I have to, you know, keep your son or daughter's privacy in mind. I can't tell you this, but here's some information. Yeah. And here are the signs and symptoms if there's a relapse. And, you know, they should probably go on to further treatment from this detox. Um, here are some websites where you can get some help. And so yeah, I mean, it's basically, it should be treated like any other medical thing when you go with diabetes or cancer. The family matters and, you know, privacy aside, yes, they have to have their privacy, but if somebody's life is in danger, there's also resources that treatment centers can give to that family without taking away that patient's privacy. So I guess that's what I 
comes to yeah, and even on and on. So. Yeah, what typical treatment looks like? Like I can't tell you, you know, especially an inpatient, right? I can't tell you about how your son's doing here today, or even if he's here. But I can tell you what the first day of detox looks like. I can tell you what the how long the uh, length of stay it normally is, and what we try to encourage for aftercare. And here's some resources if you want to be a part of it. And if you know, and if we have a consent sign, we can talk specifically. You know, kind of, kind of just being that kind of kind you know, empathetic. And so that's something that's really important to Spectre. We do family engagement specialists. Yeah. You guys are good with our that. Patients. You are. I know that. That's but nice. it is important. Yeah. I love the fact that you said just, you know, like lead with kindness, just be kind. Mm-hmm. The people are hurting. And I all, it always breaks my heart when someone's like, well, just, you know, like they haven't been in touch with them for all this time. And now they're just trying to track down their person. I get it. It's heartbreaking. Um, but I, I really like that because there are kind ways you can present to them that I can't give you information. However, yeah. Like in an emergency room too, we always, when we, when we educate nurses and, you know, the medical field, when there's a parent sitting in an emergency room for six, seven hours with somebody waiting for, for help, you know, a lot of times they're just pushed in the corner and sometimes stigmatized. (laughs) Um, And there's nothing better than somebody coming up to you and they're busy. We get that. But just, you know, a little kindness goes a long way. Like, I'm sorry that you're going through this. Somebody will be here short. You know, anything, you know, just yeah. any kind of kindness is nice because that person, I can guarantee you that mother and father is hurting, you know, and they're trying to be strong for that person that they're with. It might be their spouse or their partner even. I mean, people are hurting. So kindness goes a long way, no matter what they're the reason is that they're there, you know? Yeah, totally agree. And even just yesterday, and I, I'm, I'm not going to go back on my soapbox, I promise, but watching the press conference with the Department of Justice um, when they were announcing the um, the criminal charge, felony charges for Purdue, they were using the words abusers and this and that. And I thought, you know what? Thank you. Um, <laughs> where have you been? We don't do that anymore you know so I I felt really triggered and stigmatized yesterday and so did a lot of other people watching that press conference because it was more accolades patting each other on the back and then saying you know the abusers and nothing about patients or anything like that it was abusers and yeah I agree it's a good reminder to jump and uh lead people to proper uh, terminology. The terminology's changed. Let's get current with it. People aren't abusers and addicts. They have a substance use disorder. Um, but we're getting close to the time. We always like to be very, very timely with our guests. And we try to wrap up around 45 minutes. So we have a typical ending question, which I'll let Lisa wrap up. Um, but I just want to say thank you so much. We really, really appreciate your time with us too. Well, so thanks for having me. It was fun actually talking to you guys. So we usually ask everybody just so that we can put more resources out there, right? You talked today about how education and resources is so important. So we ask every guest kind of, do you have a book recommendation, a podcast, some kind of resource that, um, you know, we've talked about some websites and things that have been super helpful today that you would, you would share that's been helpful to you? I do. Um, one of my favorite resources to get myself grounded um, is Melody Beattie. Um, all of her books, Language of Letting Go, Codependency, No More, but she also has a great website. 
I believe it's melodybeady.com. And she has a nice blog on there. So it's nice if you're kind of going through a bad time as a family member. Um, and then if you have, if you're a grandparent and you, you're raising a child that has lost their parent or a foster care or just a caregiver, there's a new book out there by Sarah Cloud called Mama Paca, M-A-M-A and then Paca, P-A-C-A, it's on Amazon. I've seen it, it's so good. It's so tasty fun. Um, and then there's another book, but I almost hesitate to use the title because I just talked about stigmatizing <laughs> words, but it was written many years ago before we had started that conversation, but people read it like a Bible um, that are going through this with family and it's called Addict in the Family by Beverly Conyers, but it's just bottom line, you know, it helps you remind yourself that you can do everything you can. You can't always change this. And it helps you to stay like grounded. And I always tell people um, something that I never knew I could do, but is really helpful is like mindfulness podcasts, mm -hmm. how to get centered and just close your eyes. And just, mm -hmm. you could be going through the fires of hell. And sometimes if you just allow yourself to like shut it all off and kind of listen to that um, or just try it or you know there's many many podcasts out there and some great apps right some great apps on meditation to just to do that self-care yeah. centeredness because when there's so much chaos around you and you feel really overwhelmed and your loved one is 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 you know really having a hard time you know it's hard to stay focused on taking care of yourself and you can't you know fill from you can't pour from an empty cup right yeah, and my favorite thing, I guess, to do when I'm really stressed and overwhelmed and, you know, things are going on or whatever, I go for a walk. I get out in the woods mm -hmm. with my animals, um, you know, and it's okay to shut things off as long as it's not like this urgent emergency. It's okay. And I think a lot of people tend to work a lot more hours right now um, because we're all remote. We have to just keep that in mind take care of ourselves, like taking care of other people. And I know you guys are yeah. that too. So. Yeah, good boundaries. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a great way to wrap up. So thank you again so much, Joanne. Uh, thank you for all the work that you've done, how it spread over time and now spreading even further with, you know, this challenging, but, you know, the virtual opportunity. And we're just, we're just so happy to have you on. So thank you. Well, I love what you guys are doing. I think you guys are great together. It's really, oh. I like it. You know, I like what you're doing and um, I'm happy to help anytime. And, Thank you, know, you so much. I'll have to sign up so I can listen to the rest of your, <laughs> and watch the rest of your stuff. Yes, um, yes, you can listen to them on any of your podcasts. We're big fans of yours. So thank you again for giving um, us the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You guys are nice. Joanne, have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.